What's at the intersection of law and culture? Hopefully not a car wreck. Adam Panner, criminal defense attorney and writer, explains. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. All right, listeners, welcome back. Today we're changing our gears a little bit with a different kind of episode. We're going to be talking with criminal defense attorney and writer Adam Banner about his observations on culture and the law. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Lawrence, how are you doing? Doing all right. You know, it's just been a busy, busy week, as I know that you've been having too. So just, uh, you know, kind of changing gears and, uh, you know, just kind of getting things done. It's been, uh, it's been quite a busy year. I understand that. I agree wholeheartedly. It's nice to be able to take a little step away and just sit down and talk to you for a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you had me hooked at uh, culture and law. Yeah, I read through some of your articles that you post on ABA Journal. This was a, another recommendation by our producer, Molly McDonough. And so I dove in and I was kind of uh, reading through it. And so, you know, in re- recent uh, months, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts. I've been talking about cultural centers in our country and how that uh, plays into our society and how we vote the things that we like and things that we don't like. And so talking about church, you know, talking about uh, social media, talking about Hollywood, Talk about those kind of things, those major culture centers in our country. And so when I saw culture in the law, I was like, all right, I got to talk to uh, Adam here. And so I know you write these ongoing articles with ABA Journal, uh, Intersection of Law and Culture, and you sort of weave in your experiences as a criminal law attorney. And then you sort of pull out these, uh, you pull out these conclusions based on your personal observations. And so am I getting that right? Is that kind of how you define the intersection of law and culture? Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, I I got into this kind of early on as far as, you know, writing about law and pop culture. You know, I I started out a few years back. I compiled kind of an ultimate list of the best legal movies of all time. Started out by creating my own list and then I married that with 14 other, I guess, well-respected lists, you know, from some other uh, sources and, and generated kind of a weighted result for each of these movies. Then I followed that up. It got some good traction. I followed that up with a list of the top fictional lawyers of all time. We sourced that from suggestions across the legal field, law school deans, renowned law professors, celebrity attorneys, major news legal correspondents, people of that genre. Uh, We were able to get together a real nice list to kind of put that out. And that, that shifted my focus a bit to writing more in regards to you know, law and pop culture aspect. And as far as pop culture, media, film, literature, music, just doing my best to try and tease out the ways that these platforms portray the legal field and and legal issues and examine whether or not those portrayals are true to life and what we can take away from them, not only as practitioners, but also the general societal standpoint. Well, you know, I, I went through your articles and, uh, you know, I picked out some ones that I recognized. I didn't recognize all of them. So I wanted to try to find ones that I knew at least of. <laughs> so I hadn't seen all the shows that you had talked about. So I kind of picked the ones I was sort of familiar with, even if I hadn't seen the series. And then just some issues that I thought would uh, resonate with uh, our listeners out here who are, you know, lawyers and, and some non-lawyers too. So I want to want to start with the documentary series that you first mentioned. Uh, and I can't remember exactly when this was, but it was a uh, trial by media. Now I did see the episode that you referred to. So I guess it was a four episode series and uh, kind of talking about how media media's impact 
on our court system. And the one that you talked about specifically was the New York City. It was a subway vigilante guy. And so he was brought up on some criminal charges and he was portrayed in the media. And there were some observations you took away there. Now, walk us through some of those observations and what lawyers could learn from that experience. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think one of the benefits, obviously, is that the public needs to have a way to to see the the behind the scenes aspect of, of a case, whether it's criminal or civil, but especially in these criminal cases, because that is something that's going to permeate everybody's life. You know, you're going to have family members. You, you could potentially find situations where you yourself end up in the spotlight as far as having, you know, the, the state or the, the government coming down on you on, on criminal charges. And so it's important for the public to be able to see how these cases play out to a certain degree. And, and the media does a good job of, of trying to portray that and, and relay that information to a certain degree. At the same time, though, you know, practicing attorneys, they have to be careful. I've never been a fan of pretrial litigation myself as far as putting my cases in front of a camera prior to getting in the courtroom. I, I don't see the point in that. I don't see the benefit for my client, but you know, some, some attorneys like to do that. Me, myself, you know, I prefer to litigate my cases in a courtroom instead of on camera. Well, Adam, I really liked how you brought Better Call Saul into one of your articles. And that's just one of my favorite shows depicting lawyers out there. I really like that uh, Saul Goodman character, a.k.a. Slip and Jimmy. And I think that the writers of that show make those characters just so likable and they're, they're easy to relate to. And uh, you know, my second favorite character on there, Kim, who is Slip and Jimmy's girlfriend. She's also an attorney. And one of the more relatable moments, she was um, she's out there driving to a deposition representing a client a really big case she'd been working on for a really long time. And uh, she's having a hard time staying awake in her car driving over there. She was rolling down the window. She was having some coffee. And no matter what she did, she was just kind of nodding off and trying to stay awake. And uh, sort of that that zombie drive we've all had when we're working really hard driving to and from the office, just something I could totally relate to and really really like the series. And uh, you know, I like how you weaved in negotiations into the, the Better Call Saul article. And so you know, regardless of whether you're working in criminal law or you're uh, working on a civil case, you know, lawyers have to negotiate with other lawyers and lawyers need to negotiate with their clients. But let's uh, let's talk about how you weave that in. You know, you talked about Better Call Saw and some of the moments there and how uh, attorneys need to negotiate uh, all the time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I and mean, that scene with Kim driving is, is perfect. You know, that talks about kind of attorney burnout and how you need to step away sometimes. But as far as uh, what you mentioned from the negotiation aspect, that whole series involves just negotiations on so many different levels with so many different players. You have individuals negotiating in the crime sphere, trying to uh, get deals done or, or just trying to negotiate their own personal reputation and, and how they play into the whole system as a whole. And then obviously you have the legal aspect of it. And, and it's nice that you're able to see, for me personally, being a criminal defense attorney, I can't tell you how many times I've walked up and down the halls of a courthouse trying to find a prosecutor that I've been looking for for a week to negotiate a case. And there's that perfect scene where uh, Jimmy uh, finds a way to pay off one of the custodians or maintenance workers to get the elevator to stop. So he's stuck there with the prosecutor and the prosecutor really has no other option than to just sit down with him and negotiate these cases. And uh, that really struck a chord with me because I'm not going to lie. There's plenty of times in my career. I wish that uh, I could just get a prosecutor in a room and say, Hey, these are the cases we have. 
let's get down to nuts and bolts and, and let's see if we can we can get something taken care of that's beneficial for all parties involved. Well, this is one I'm not familiar with, 100 humans. And so you you put together a piece there about the importance of having your client appear normal or at least be as attractive as they can be and their relative success in court. Yeah, 100 Humans was actually pretty interesting. I, I didn't like the series as a whole, but, you know, about 13, 15 minutes into watching one of the episodes, that kind of that law and pop culture vibe kicked in. And, and I saw where they were doing a segment. They put some individuals, they secluded them, and then they would show them images of someone who's quote unquote attractive and somebody who is on the other end of that spectrum, you know, unattractive. They would say these individuals are charged with the same crime. And obviously it's, it's blind. They don't know that they're being shown two different people with the same fact patterns, but case after case after case, the, the attractive person, relatively attractive, you know, you don't want to sound too superficial, but that individual always got a lighter sentence. And, and it's interesting because there was a Cornell study that was done back in 2010 and it came to that same conclusion. The attractive defendants received on average, 22 months less than the quote unquote unattractive defendants. So it's really important when you're gauging how your client's going to appear in front of a potential jury panel. Well, that's a pretty big difference. 22 months. That's, that's incredible. Right. Absolutely. So one last question for you real quick. We're almost out of time. You know, this is a series I have not seen much to the chagrin of some of my friends who highly recommend it. And I am, I am a Danny DeVito fan. I really like Danny DeVito, but uh, it's he's always, great. <laughs> he's a, you know, I, I remember uh, growing up as a kid watching with my family reruns of Taxi, probably not the most appropriate TV for a young kid, but I always loved Danny DeVito. Just always cracked me up. And uh, probably one of my favorite roles was when he played the Penguin in Batman. That was just classic. So, Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Real quick. What can we learn from there, from pro se litigation perspective, before anybody out there decides to go into small claims court? You know, I, I got I got a lot of pushback actually on that article from some some groups that kind of champion pro se litigation. Most of them, or, or all of them, I think it was, were more in the civil pro se litigation realm. Which, if they had read the article in total, they would have seen that I make a, a pretty good distinction between pro se litigation in civil cases versus criminal cases. In civil cases, you know, you might be arguing over, you know, a large sum of money or, or potentially, you know, something like uh, parental rights. But in criminal cases, we're literally talking about life and death. I was trying to set a case for jury trial a couple of weeks ago when the judge told me, well, that jury term is off because we've got a pro se death penalty case. Oh my God. An individual, yeah, an individual wanting to represent himself in a death penalty case. And and it just blew my mind. You know, to me, that's the equivalent of somebody trying to do open heart surgery on themselves. It's just, it, it's, it's not a good idea when you have skilled individuals who have made their careers doing this, who have success doing this, and who have the experience and, and the ability to probably do a lot better job than, than you can, because you're just not in that same realm of proficiency. And so, you know, I, I think it was Abraham Lincoln said, uh, uh, anybody who represents themselves has a, has a fool for a client. And, and that's kind of what, what the gist of that is. I mean, pro se litigation, I understand there's a constitutional right to it, but at the same time, you have to temper that with the understanding that we have a lot of rights that <laughs> just because you have the ability to exercise them doesn't mean you necessarily need to in every situation. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. It was really great talking with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you as well. And if our listeners who want to read more from you about the intersection of law and culture, where can they find your work? Uh, you can find a lot uh, on the ABA Journal. I, I do a, a, a bi-weekly column over there. Also, uh, my website, www.oklahomalegalgroup.com. And they can also find me on Twitter at OKC Defense Law. So uh, yeah, any, any of those places, any of my social media, I'm usually putting out some, some material and, and uh, like to share it and like to hear feedback. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, also want to thank our team producer, Molly McDonough and our LTN crew for their continued hard work, making it sound so good. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 